This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 14. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Lynn. <laughs> so we are really excited in this episode. Uh, we have the opportunity for you to hear from Ewan McIntosh, author of How to Come Up with Great Ideas and Actually Make Them Happen, a manual that does what it says for education leaders, innovators, and people who want to be both. Ewan is the founder of Notosh, a company that makes accessible to schools and other organizations the creative process required to innovate, to find meaningful problems and solve them. Learning is at the heart of what Notosh does for organizations, and certainly something that we're very interested in this year as we work with our Innovate Salisbury team. Ewan was a French and German high school teacher before moving from the classroom into technology research and leadership as Scotland's first national advisor on learning and technology futures. Ewan's education projects are varied, working with schools on design thinking and developing leadership, helping create the world's first TEDx event by and for eight-year-olds, and turning the textbook on its head through interactive developments. Ewan frequently gives talks and workshops around the world, trying to find new and better ways of using emerging technologies in education and exploring the changing physical environments that are required to harness these learning opportunities. You can check out Ewan's TED, TEDx London talk on the importance of problem fi finding, and we will link that in the show notes. Good afternoon, Ewan. How are you? I'm very well. Good morning or good afternoon to you as well. <laughs> it is morning here and uh, afternoon where Ewan is in Scotland. So thanks so much for spending uh, your afternoon with us for a few minutes here to talk about uh, your work around innovation and design thinking process. So to kick off the conversation, uh, a number of episodes ago, we interviewed the author Warren Berger, who wrote a book, A More Beautiful Question. And in that book, he describes a beautiful question as one that is ambitious and actionable. So when you were writing your book, How to Come Up with Great Ideas, what was the beautiful question behind your work? I mean, the beautiful question is also one that is often not actionable for people. And it's that thing of... Um, it's easy to come up with ideas and people come up with them all the time. The big question is, uh, what are you going to do with it? And I found that in education in particular, we have quite a lot of, of uh, ambitious dreamers, if you like. And that's not meant to be a criticism. It's, uh, you know, there's, we, we spend our days with inspiring young people who, whose job in life is to dream. The challenge is this thing of, you know, 
very quickly we talk ourselves out of ideas and we talk ourselves out of doing those ideas uh, because we're too clever and we, we, we spend too much time going, oh yeah, but it's not feasible or we can't make that happen, we've not got the budget, we don't have the time um, and or you know, other people might not like it. And I felt that the work that we were often being asked to do with schools was not rocket science. And quite often we were brought in maybe as the fall guys to, to help people make happen what they had already worked out for themselves. And getting this book out has been great for us in some ways because the people coming to us now have actually gone and started creating their ideas and making them happen. And now they're talking about, okay, how do we make this really spread? How do we take this idea? We can see it works. How do we really make it work um, on a bigger scale? Mm-hmm. I love that idea of doing. Um, that's actually um, one of my words for the year is, is is doing and taking action. And I think you're exactly right. In, in education, we have a lot of people out there that are thinking of great ideas, but the real hard work is to actually do it. And um, you definitely outline a process in your book um, that we found interesting and intriguing and look forward to chatting about. Mm. And trying to get away from those navigating those barriers that we sort of put up in front of us as we keep thinking about the ideas that you talked about. And I think the the biggest challenge with those barriers in school, we always work collaboratively. We're always, everything we do, um, maybe apart from actually teaching, everything else requires other people to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And in even teaching the, the curriculum that, you, that you're working through or working with has been created by someone else. So it's, it is harder to work with other people to come up with great ideas. And very often startups, you know, we always admire technology startups over in Palo Alto, well, they've not had to work with other people. It's been two or three founders with a core idea, this laser-like focus that, that we always hear about. They've not had to collaborate with the financial officer of the school, <laughs> the teacher mm-hmm. association. You know, we have a different kind of um, environment, really, in schools. And that's why I thought, you know, we need, we need our own guide, um, the Lean Startup, Business model canvas, they don't quite cut it for schools 100%. We need something of our own. So in your book, you outline design thinking strategies, this something of our own, and some tactics within the framework um, that you shared was the three horizons. Can you give us an overview of each phase? Sure. I mean, the three horizons has been around for decades. It was um, McKinsey. It's a McKinsey thing. But um, in education, it's interesting. The first horizon being where we are today. And... I found that in schools in particular, with the dreamers that, that we've talked about, and I think that you know, two people who choose to create a, a podcast for teachers must fall within the, the dreamer category to some degree. Oh, or wow. <laughs> you know, the, the biggest challenge is that we can jump straight to the idea. So wouldn't it be cool if dot, 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 without really looking at the problem and, and, and saying, is there a need we're really trying to address here? And that's why a lot of teachers in school, I think, sometimes feel like they've, they're victims of the initiatives that come out rather than willing partners in them. It's yet another thing that someone has, has cooked up for us and, and we've now got to make it happen. So Horizon One is together in a school community really taking a look at the detail of the status quo, the nitty gritty of the here and now, and using that as the stimulus to find a great idea in the third horizon. And that third horizon is way off five, ten years. We call them big, hairy, audacious goals (laughs) because they should be more 
than just an incremental change. It should be about, in, in today's work, where are the opportunities for creating some seismic change? And then the second horizon, once you've worked out what it is and once you've ascertained the need for it, only then do you go about working out how to get there. And the second horizon is not about killing your idea by saying, well, oh, but we don't have X, Y, or Z. The second horizon is just that pragmatic step-by-step, um, what are the different ways you can go about making your idea happen? Mm-hmm. Maybe not tomorrow, but maybe, you know, maybe in, in four weeks or four months or four years' time. So is that first horizon essentially understanding the why or getting to the point of why? Probably trying to find the why. We talk about um, a real simple technique is the five whys, uh, which is used as a, a kind of root cause analysis tool quite often in engineering. So when you ask why five times, the first four times it's just annoying. It's like it's like your inner five-year-old um, <laughs> pushing and prodding and and generally as adults we don't like it because the an- the answers are, are blindingly obvious mm-hmm. but then the fifth why there is a magical thing happens and quite often it's the revelation of oh yeah that that's actually the core problem here and so we've um i mean i use it in conversations where the first reason for not doing something is oh we don't have the time you say well why don't you have the time um because i'm teaching you know, 98% of my contracted contact hours I'm teaching. I have no spare time during the day. Why don't you have any spare time during the day? Um, because every lunchtime I'm holding clubs and in after school I'm preparing for the following day. Why do you prepare for the following day at the end of the previous day? Because I need to see what they've learned in, on the Monday before I can plan what they learn on the Tuesday. Why do you need to know what they've learned? on the Monday before you plan for the Tuesday so that I can design a lesson that's adapted to the 30 kids in front of me. Why do you need to keep design learning that's made for the 30 individuals in front of you? Uh, because they don't know how to design their own learning. Now we've found the problem. Mm-hmm. We've found the problem because 30 kids are actually disempowered by their overworked, over-diligent teacher who is so busy planning lessons on the, on the fly that respond to individual learners' needs instead of honing in on, on you know, what skills, what thinking skills can I teach young people so that they can take whatever they've got and break it up and make it work for themselves. And certainly in public education here in the States, uh, we are weary <laughs> of lots yeah. of initiatives. Every year something comes down the pike, and I think that a lot of that weariness stems from this idea that nobody's asking those why questions. We just, we've become so compliant uh, yeah. within our system and it's really sort of what we expect of our students then too so it all it's this sort of trickle down thing and and we never really get to the point of saying why are we actually doing all of these things or 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 even in the area of technology and schools buying stuff like why are we buying stuff <laughs> and usually they're buying stuff because the next the neighboring school district's <laughs> buying it or there's That's some it. or there's some sort there of was a grant there was a grant you yeah. didn't have to pay for it so yeah. we can get this Here's another 3D printer that we don't really know what to do with. <laughs> I think, you know, they, when you look at adverts for 3D printers, quite often it's some kind of plastic rabbit that's been produced in yep. the thing. And you've got to ask you, why do you need a 3D printer? Because it's it's not to create more landfill. And I look at amazing teachers in the States like Chris Kraft. Um, in, uh, he's in one of the Carolinas. I can't remember which one. I think South Carolina. And he's, um, with his students, they're asking why of the 3D printer. 
and creating amazing projects where they, they found a charity that produces, um, that, that needs people with 3D printers to produce prosthetics. And so they were able to produce hands, prosthetic hands, uh, for people in need of them uh, because due to the, the, the health care system being what it is in the States, they couldn't afford to get a, a prosthesis from uh, the usual sources. And then, you know, wonderful, wonderful stories of helping kids the same age as them who were born without a left hand. And they're able to design bespoke hands with a 3D printer. Mm. And, you know, do you need to ask where the learning is in that? I, I don't think so. Mm. But that's, that's proper, you know, moonshot thinking, as, as the Googlers would call it, really saying, mm -hmm. look, we can do more than just print another damned rabbit. We can, mm -hmm. we can go further than that. Yeah, and and uh, that that first horizon, I think, if we invoke that, helps us get there. So, can you talk a little bit more specifically about some of your work in the area of education, and what are some of the challenges um, that schools and districts that you're working with are addressing using the the design thinking three horizons approach? I think there's probably probably a uh, two or three different things actually because. Some people approach us really with, with nothing planned. And they're saying, you know, we, we know that there's a rough area where we want to play, but we don't quite know what we want to play at in that area. So a good example there would be um, we've just kicked off with Zurich International School. Um, it's a, a, a fantastic institution, amazing uh, reputation. And the ed tech uh, department and team and the librarians who, who are part of that same team they are proactively saying, you know, what is, what is our role going to be in this school? Because it can't be the same as it is today, five years from now. And this is a pretty epic question to ask. Um, and so they, they approached us saying, look, how could we use design thinking to think differently about it? You've got to bear in mind, design thinking is just designing your thinking. It's thinking really carefully mm. about the type of mindset you want for any given task. So they already had that, that first mindset, that first horizon mindset of total divergent thinking, open to all possibilities, um, because they, they, can, they contracted us on the basis they had no right answer. And so that's a joy to work with. Um, <laughs> even, you know, the, the environment itself is very high stakes. You know, it's a, an incredibly successful academic school. So the, the, the stakes are high, if you like, but... Um, their attitude has just been exemplary in terms of realizing proactivity um, is one of the best places to start when you want to think differently about stuff. So that's starting with the first horizon. We also get people, I mean, this Wednesday, I should say 30% of our work, maybe as much as 40 at the moment, it has nothing to do with schools. And we work with big engineering companies, um, creative firms, fashion firms, we work with organizations like the International Baccalaureate Organization, looking at um, organizational renewal and, and how, does a, how does an organization um, up its, its skill set and its capacity. And so this uh, Wednesday, I'm working with a creative firm that already does creative work. It's, that's what people pay them for. And they approached us because what was missing for them was the third horizon. They, they're winning the contracts to produce amazing advertising and marketing for clients. But then when they present the work that they, they want to share, the, the client's saying, um, no, I don't want so much of that, thanks. I'll give us something a bit safer. Give us something a bit tamer, uh, perhaps. And so here's a, an activity where we're really looking at the third horizon. And how do you dream up 
more compelling ideas that really um, reach into people. And of course, a large part in that is diving back into the first horizon and just asking, have you found the right problem? Are you solving the right problem? Are you presenting the right opportunity in the first place? And then, of course, you've got um, some second horizon stuff. And this is a tough one for us because we're not project managers. And the best people to look after that second horizon of making stuff happen, they're great administrators who know how to jump over the hurdles that are put in our way. <laughs> um, and I think when we're involved in that type of work, often it's helping give a language of collaboration. A lot of, a lot of schools just don't actually know how to collaborate. So we sit around tables which just kills creativity, kills the creative energy in the room. We have hierarchies where we expect someone else to kick off. We don't really have a set of discussion frameworks. So we just talk. And actually it's conversation we're having rather than collaboration, rather than constructing something together. And so a lot of my work in the past month has actually been helping people with listening and looking at how you listen effectively, uh, leaning a lot on the work of Otto Scharmer. Um, he talks about these four or five le levels of listening. And most people operate on about level two out of four. And the conversational, uh, as he puts it, listening in order to respond. And we've all been in that meeting where you're saying something and you're very aware of the fact that people are listening going, right, where's, where's the bit I can jump in and tell my story? Instead of listening to empathize, um, which would be, you know, prodding a little bit further and saying, now, what makes you say that? Which is a good old Harvard Project Zero thinking routine. You know, what makes you say that? What mm -hmm. makes you think that? Where does that come from? But then taking it a stage further, how do you listen so that you can co-construct something? So you, I'm going to invite you to share half an idea or half an observation that you've made. And your expectation is that you're only going to share part of the observation you've made or part of the idea you've constructed because you want someone else to complete it. And when you get two people or more working in that level, the quality of work is so much greater than if each individual just takes pot shot at each other saying, here's my way, here's my idea, here's my idea, right? Which one's best? Let's take a vote. That doesn't work. It's not the best way. I think you wrote a blog post on that, didn't you? Mm, maybe, or a Facebook post. It was I remember something reading something. Yeah, I, just in the last couple of weeks, I think I, I did a, a blog post on either edu.blogs.com. Yeah. Um, and I think I've also shared it. Uh, well, maybe not, actually, because I'm not seeing it straight away. So perhaps I've shared it um, on uh, on Facebook. Um, yes, we I were remember. Having, you know, engineers talking at each other instead of with each other. And so we ended up taking them aside and spending a valuable half hour just looking at that. And I think the courage of a, of a superintendent, for example, to pause a meeting that's been scheduled for an hour and say, we're going to sacrifice the next 20 minutes just to learn how to listen to each other. Um, you win back that time in, in no time at all. So you talk about um, the need for leaders in schools to balance business as usual Mm -hmm. and the need to innovate. And this is something that Randy and I struggle with because we often talk about meetings that we want to generate new ideas and talk about ideas become very operational. And, you know, how do we, how do we balance that operational with the innovation? And what are some yeah. ways that leaders can address that challenge of time to design the innovative work? I think one way that definitely works, um, although it's an expensive way to do it perhaps, is to carve out 
specific moments in a year where people come together in order to learn how to innovate and to innovate together. Mm -hmm. One of our most successful projects in the States has been um, R2 Innovates uh, down in um, uh, uh, Richland 2 School District in, near Columbus in South uh, Carolina. Uh, what was it? Columbus, so, uh, Columbia in South Carolina. Um, what was interesting there, they, they made a significant investment in getting teachers out of their classroom to learn how to innovate. They made it competitive, so to take part, you had to have a kernel of an idea that you wanted to develop. Um, and they offered a big carrot at the end, which was if you developed your idea into a compelling final product or, or an idea for a product, we will invest in your idea to make it happen. We'll give you the time and the money and the expertise that's necessary to turn your idea into reality. Uh, we held their hand for two years on that. Now they are running that on their own as an in-house kind of accelerator, you might call it. Um, so that's quite a structured, formal way. And obviously, it's highly beneficial for the 60 or so who take part every year. And there'll be some rub off on the schools themselves. But on day to day uh, business, I think there's a few things. First is have a real clear language with your team about what type of innovation you're undertaking at any time. So uh, that first horizon often does not feel like innovation because you're going around with a notepad and you're looking for things that don't work and things that do work really well. I hope that a principal does that every day anyway, but I know lots of principals don't mm -hmm. and a lot of teachers don't know where the principal is half mm -hmm. the time. Um, so going around a school, popping into classrooms, but not just to show face, popping into classrooms to look at, you know, Maybe today I'm just going to look at physical environment. Is the space helping my teachers teach? Is it helping learners learn or is it getting in the way? Maybe another day I'm going to look at the technology that's being used. The third day I'm going to look at how technology is being used. Um, the third, fourth day I'm going to concentrate on learners for whom English is not their first language and see how well we support them, not just in class, but in the school cafeteria, in the corridors, at playtime, at recess. Um, I'm going to concentrate on a specific area and what you'll end up with is a we call it a, an ideas list or a bug list uh, but you end up with just a ton of stuff that could be innovated upon and then I would say to folk look I want help to make sense of this transfer all of it onto post-it notes maybe get a team to do the same with you if you can afford to give people half an hour out of class to go and observe themselves often that's all it takes but bring that together, synthesize it, work out what the best problem you've got is, and then actually go about solving it. Now you're in that third horizon, it's the creative space. Yeah, it helps to create and carve out some time. Um, I think the, the challenge that we all have with time is interesting because we all have the same amount of it. Uh, school, <laughs> teachers, uh, school teachers, though, do not control their time. And when people say they don't have enough time, often in school, they actually mean... I don't own my time. And that's a hugely stressful mm. position to be in. Mm -hmm. And I think school leaders can do a lot more creative and imaginative work in terms of timetabling. Take a lesson or two from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, where it's quite normal to have um, a maths class that lasts four hours or five hours, but once a week. And it means that that maths teacher has a very different kind of flow to their week from the maths teacher in Scotland who is running around uh, like the proverbial fly trying to um, you know trying to work out what's coming in through the door next mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is 
PD time is over-programmed, um, particularly in North America. I've noticed that uh, schools are very fond of outside help, outside expertise. Actually, nothing beats using your own team and using the, the quality in your own team for running a PD day and opening up some time within that for teachers to work together to solve some of the problems they've found. And often the big innovations are in the tiny details. It's the tiny stuff that that snowballs out of control and becomes the, the big headache of tomorrow. So there's a real interest for, for head teachers, leaders in schools, to, you know, business as usual, how much of your teacher's work can be delegated to cheaper support staff or even volunteers? Um, how much busy work are you asking teachers to do that actually no one needs and no one's going to notice if it's not done? Um, what about the the requirement on reporting? Is there any way that you can make that lighter? Meetings. Do you need meetings? Uh, can you get rid of meetings? Can you do what I do, which is normally put meetings at quarter to the hour and try and make them last 15 minutes? People just assume you're really busy and they say what they need to say in five minutes. You say what you've got to say in five minutes and you make a decision in the following five. And doing that saves you four hours a day of meetings you don't need. Um, so there's plenty of hacks that people can use to actually open up time and give people more control over it. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, we have to use our use our resources to the best of the capability and prioritize how they're being used and for what they're being used. Yeah, it's a great and, first problem to tackle, actually. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for problems to, to work with, time <laughs> is not a bad place to start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we prioritize, we have to think values. And can you talk to us a little bit about the rock values and whirlpool values and how they're addressed in the third horizon? Sure. I actually heard about this from Scottish colleagues who had written a small book on transforming education in Scotland. And they referred to these, this metaphor of the rock and the whirlpool. And um, it's a sailing metaphor. So rocks are, it's, it's, it's not, it's often interpreted as a negative thing. It's not. Rocks are solid. They're a safe port of call. They don't move too much, too too quickly. So the values that are rock values in a school, um, they're normally ones that are already expressed quite clearly somewhere. They'll be in some mission that nobody's ever read. Or they'll be in the kind of language that students and teachers already use. So in my daughter's school, for example, respect, integrity. These are the two big words that you know, aged eight, she still comes through with and talks about. And um, she understands what they mean because they live and breathe them day in, day out. Whirlpool values, they're often ones that you do not find in our mission statement. These are the values, what you might call the values behind change. And you won't find them in a mission statement because mission statements are often seeking stability in schools. And whirlpool values are about, well, a whirlpool when you're on a boat is incredibly exciting. <laughs> It's quite dangerous, but it's incredibly exciting. There is a risk that the wave will, will come over the top of your ship and, and maybe, you know, make you a bit wet. But no one's ever really been sunk by a whirlpool. Um, and if you don't believe me, you can go to the west coast of Scotland and see amazing whirlpools where people do just get rather wet, uh, but no harm comes to them. That's innovation in school. No one is going to die from an innovation in school. And no children will be harmed by undertaking quality innovation in learning and teaching. Go and do your homework, go and do the research, work out what, what makes quality teaching and learning as far as we know it, and then try it. So when you see that for the last 30 years, feedback only with no grades is the way to improve learning the most, 
do an A, B experiment with it and test it out. And it's easy for me to say, and if I went to a school that did not have a whirlpool value set, whirlpool value in that one is um, we, we test the research we hear about in order to understand if, it's, if it works here. Um, that's a strong value. So if a teacher then says, I have discovered this research and I want to test it, the value is pretty clear. And what you do is you use these two on an axis to uh, play off each other and undertake what we call a pre-mortem, uh, like a post-mortem, except the idea is not dead yet. And you try and work out all the ways that this idea is going to get killed by people who are far too attached to the rocks. Um, and it's a great way to, to actually change your idea. So if your idea is too close to the whirlpool, it's not going to get accepted anyway, is it? If it's too close to the rock values, then it's too slow and, and it's not actually creating any change. And so you undertake this uh, pre-mortem. You examine your idea in minute detail and you try and work out what value does each element of this idea bring to the table and try and seek some balance and make sure you understand why you're not going to accept um, some rock values over some of your whirlpool values. There is going to be compromise. The question is, which values are you not prepared to let go of within the whirlpool? And which values are you keen to promote from within those steady rocks? So a lot of what you're talking about requires conversation, which requires time. And yep. uh, another thing that you talk about in the second horizon is this this idea of prototyping. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about prototyping and the value and the importance of that as part of that second horizon. Well, I mean, prototyping is a great response to the question of time or lack of time, because the idea behind it is you produce the minimum possible in order to get feedback that allows you to grow your idea one more step. So, for example... You're um, creating this podcast today using a really beautiful mic and, um, you know, you've got a barrier there to stop your you know, lip smacking. Um, you've got some good software there that you're using, which you've spent time learning how to use. My, my guess is that the first podcast you ever did did not use those pieces of equipment. It probably used a $15 uh, USB microphone from uh, Radio Shack, now defunct. <laughs> it probably used um, uh, Audacity because it was free and you didn't need to buy an expensive computer to make it work. And you, you, over time, you have prototyped your show to the point where you've got this beautiful quality um, of production. That's the same for prototyping when you're going to build a new $40 million school campus. Mm. At the moment, what we do with our new school building, for example, is we trust the architect to come up with an idea. When they tell us what to do, we go and build it with them. And that is folly. It's absolute folly because you don't know if the building is going to work. It's very rare for someone to prototype it. So we were prototyping a school. Plans are one way to do it. We might prototype the learning we want to see, though. So why don't we take over the gym and put up some light poly uh, polystyrene structures that split the space up the way we want it to be and then start teaching in it. And when you realize that the space is too small, push the wall out. When you realize that there's too much furniture in the class, get rid of it. And you prototype in that way to get a feel for what's required. And then you can have that first conversation with the architect saying, this didn't quite work because, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, prototyping in technology is don't build a website. Build a plan for a website first. 
uh, wireframe it. Get feedback on every stage of the journey. So don't just do one step and then carry on. Go and get feedback from the people you think are going to benefit from the idea you've created. Because early on, they might tell you that your idea is nuts, stupid, and they don't want it. Now, you can always ignore their feedback, but you can also ask them, how would you make it better? And it's that specific and useful feedback that is going to make your idea better over time. So prototyping is really, you know, the, the best guide to prototyping, if you don't have much time, would be to head over to the wonderful video that Ron Berger has produced with Expeditionary Learning called Austin's Butterfly. And in six minutes, 30 seconds, you understand what prototyping looks like in the classroom. When a first grader takes a, a kiddo drawing of a, of a butterfly and ends up producing a masterpiece thanks to the art of prototyping and feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I've seen that. <laughs> it's a classic. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely link to it. Yeah, we'll add it in. So um, throughout the process, using mini manifestos, can you talk with us a little bit about the purpose and benefit of using these in the design thinking process? Well, mini manifestos was an idea cooked up on a very wet afternoon uh, back in 2011. One of our big creative jobs that we undertook, nothing to do with education, was directing the digital part of the election campaign for the SNP, who were the Scottish government at that time, but were poised to lose the election. And um, in 100 days, we helped to bring the, the, the swing of vote 18 points ahead. It was one of the, it still is the biggest ever political swing of any political party in the world. Um, how did we do that? One part was really understanding who it was we were trying to, to share the message of, of this, this uh, political party. You know, who are they? Where are they? And when Obama did his first kind of big campaign, he had 42 tools at his disposal, including the offline, non-digital ones. By the time 2011 came around, three years on, we had 114, 114 options to, to share stories and to gather stories and to get the message out there. So we were spoilt for choice, a bit like schools, spoilt for choice in terms of <laughs> things we, mm -hmm. we could do. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided that we, you know, for every one of these different types of people, we needed a different story to tell and that no one would read 42,000 words of a manifesto. That's how long a, a political manifesto is. Um, so we said, well, they might read 400 words. And so we created 20 personas of different people in the country. Now, creating for each of them a different manifesto that got across the key points was a real challenge, but we did it. We did one a day, front page news on the television every day, because every day was a new focus. And, and that's what people liked. So we had one for teachers. We had one for carers, people who provide care to family. We had environmental one for the greenies. We had um, <laughs> a, one for the creative industries, which are huge in Scotland as well. So this idea worked, worked really well. It's now become politically normal to have many manifestos. Um, certainly on this side of the pond, it's quite normal. It's not normal in schools. So in schools where we've been using the Three Horizons um, and design thinking lens to rewrite school strategy, the use of a mini manifesto is interesting to explain it. So when you've created a, a school strategy, what, what normally happens is it will sit on a shelf. It's kind of relevant to everyone, but not relevant enough for everyone to want to read it cover to cover. But if I were to say to you, you know, sum up this school strategy for the first grader, how would you sum it up? 
because a, a first grader should understand the direction of the school and what role they have to play in making it great. If you're explaining it to a parent who is a member of the PTA and, and taking part very actively in the school, that's a very different explanation to the parent who never shows up to parents' evening and thinks you're there just to get their kid into college or get them a job. They both need a different way of, it, of, of explaining. And traditionally, schools have been terrible communicators. Um, we rely on mass communication of email or letters home. We rely on people being interested. We, we assume people are interested in the education of their kid, and we assume kids are interested in finding stuff out. When you're working in politics, you assume no one is interested. And so <laughs> doing that allows you to, to create really directed uh, communication. And to do that, you need to know who you're communicating with. And that's really the key thing to bear in mind with the idea of a, a mini manifesto or a mini strategy. Fascinating. And there have yeah. been lots of, lots of fascinating uh, parts of this conversation Absolutely. today. Absolutely. So to wrap up our conversation, let's go back to that beautiful question question. So mm. your work now and in the future. So what are the beautiful questions you're currently thinking about? My head's a little bit spinning with them at the moment because I've had um, four weeks nonstop on the road with different clients we're working with. And some of them are confidential. Um, but I think... Some of the big hairy audacious goals that we're considering are the, is the future of mobility. How are we going to move in the future? Mm. And um, how do we make moving easier for everyone involved? And it sounds, maybe it doesn't sound particularly beautiful, but we're working with one of the world's top engineering firms to rethink everything about the automobile and about how we use them. And I think in a country like the United States, there's some real provocation in there um, that, that will have an impact in five or 10 years time. But we're working on that right now today. Um, so that's from the industrial side. I think that from the school side, the, the, maybe the most beautiful question is um, how might we create a sense of the village amongst all our learners, parents and teachers and increasingly I'm seeing schools that are K through 12 or birth to 12, but they, they're missing something. And it's almost like four or five schools in one building. Instead of feeling like a village where you walk through a village, it's definitely got a village feel, but everyone's house has its own feel, its own design. Every street has its own feel. And you know where you are in relation to everything else. And you have your favorite spots to hang out. Um, so that's a beautiful question I think for any school to think about but we're lucky that one of our schools International School of Prague is actually thinking about that at the moment. Wow lots lots to think about. Well thank you so much for joining us Ewan. Um, we certainly have a lot of links here that we'll post if you want to learn more about Ewan's work. Ewan's work edublogs.com is Ewan's blog. Notosh is Ewan's consultancy. You can also check out the lab where you can help yourself to some of the latest ideas um, of his team. You can follow Ewan on Twitter at Ewan McIntosh and also the organization at Notosh. Ewan's TEDx London talk will link there and also Facebook, a couple of other things that Ewan mentioned throughout the interview. And don't forget to check out Ewan's book, How to Come Up with Great Ideas and Actually Make Them Happen. Certainly has helped us reflect on some of our work with teachers this year in our Innovate Salisbury team. And it's a beautiful book that's available in iTunes too, uh, and it's also available as a uh, hard copy paperback. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions include, 
How might education be different if we applied concepts of design thinking regularly in our practice? And what challenge would you like to tackle with the process Ewan has outlined for us today? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org. Look for season two, episode 14. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. Well, that's it for today. Uh, We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Ewan. Thank you very much for the invitation and thanks to everyone for listening in. Thank you. Take care. Bye, Lynn. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.